Becoming a Man. We were shipped out of Skarzysko in train cars to a town called Częstochowa, where there were several working camps that also belonged to Hasak. I ended up in Jelazna Huta, which was an iron smelting factory. This camp seemed like a sanatorium compared to Skarzysko. We never saw a German inside the camp, and only one person ever died in that camp when I was there. And he was a youngster who was not careful. The camp was beside railway tracks on which there were trains going by night and day, taking tanks and ammunition to fight against the Soviet Union, and coming back with wounded soldiers from the front. This boy must have gotten too close to the rails, and one of the guards shot him. Because we had been surrounded by death for so long, had seen it so intimately, we thought we had somehow become immune to its power. The enormity of death had almost become a normal, everyday occurrence. But when that one boy died in Częstochowa, it was extremely traumatic. Somehow, it was more traumatic than being surrounded by hundreds of dead bodies in Skarzysko and later at Buchenwald. One single individual dying was a tragedy. The greatest difference between this camp and the other camps I had been in was the Lagerältester, a Jewish commander. He was a kind and wonderful man. I think his name was Frankel, but I can't be sure. He chose decent people to be couples and went out of his way to help the children. When one of the young boys had appendicitis, he arranged for the boy to be taken to a hospital in Częstochowa for the operation and then to actually be brought back. He also had a tailor in the camp cut up blankets and make jackets for the kids so we could be warm in the winter. I also still had the clothes and boots that cats had given me, so I was well protected that winter. There were three categories of work in that camp, light, medium, and heavy. Depending on what kind of work we did, we were given a metal tag for a particular amount of food. The system was such that the harder we worked, the more food we got. Frankel arranged it so that youngsters got medium tags, no matter what work we did. The food wasn't nearly as bad as Skarzysko either, and even better than in any other camp I had been in. The work I did was with a group in the steel-making factory. The molten steel was poured into molds, and then we threw water on the ingots to cool them off. Then we had to take the heavy ingots out of their molds and load them on the rail cars. We had to work quickly because there was a quota how many ingots we had to produce and load in a day. In Częstochowa, we suffered from the hard, heavy work and also from being slaves to the Germans, but not from the treatment we received from the Jewish administration. As a matter of fact, I used to call this camp Beit Havra'ah, the Hebrew word for a sanatorium, a health spa. I had warm clothing for the winter. We got decent food. We weren't full of lies. And I'm sure that my stay there gave me the time to heal and the strength to survive what came after we left there. 
When we arrived at the camp, I found Rav Godel Eisner, a great Talmudist who had been a friend of my father's since they had studied in the same yeshiva together. One day, Rav Eisner came to me and said, I was at your Brit Milah, circumcision, and now that you are turning 13, we are going to make you a bar mitzvah. By that time, I had lost all hope and long neglected my religious observances. I didn't want to go through with it and was afraid of the possible consequences. Even though this camp was more flexible and not so strict, it was an extremely dangerous undertaking. There were constant appeals and we were closely watched. No matter how kind some of the guards might be, we knew we were risking death. Besides, I felt no religious need for it. I told Rabbi Eisner that I didn't want a bar mitzvah, and I began avoiding him from that day on. I tried to keep out of his way, but he persisted, and I finally agreed. Rav Eisner was not in my barracks, so on the night we arranged for the bar mitzvah, I exchanged places with a person from his barracks. He came to sleep in my bunk right before curfew, and I went to his barracks for my bar mitzvah. I hid under his bunk until all was quiet, and then we proceeded quickly. Even though any type of religious observance was strictly forbidden in the camps, religious Jews managed to find ways to continue to practice their faith. I don't know how, but they managed to smuggle all kinds of things in. Rav Eisner had managed to smuggle tefillin, the black leather box and straps that Jewish men wear to pray, and a siddur, the Jewish prayer book. He put on the tefillin and gathered ten men for a minyan, the number needed for a traditional service. I repeated the brachot, the benedictions after him, and then the minyan prayed together. When it was done, he benched me, blessed me, and said a few times in Yiddish, With God's help, wirst du überleben Hitler. With God's help, you will survive Hitler. In spite of myself, I was caught up in the fervor of the event, and it renewed my hope that I might actually, with God's help, survive. I believe that having my bar mitzvah in that camp really did help me survive. It gave me strength. Years later, an American woman named Arnin Kamsky Weiss found out that I had my bar mitzvah in Czestochowa and approached me to share my story when she was writing a book about unusual bar mitzvahs. My story is in her book, Becoming a Bar Mitzvah. I was in Czestochowa for a few months. I think from about August to December 1944. Then the Soviets were approaching, and by November or December, we could hear the fighting at the front. The Nazis evacuated us prisoners, and we were shipped out again. They put us into rail cars, but for the first few days, the wagons didn't move. We just sat there on the rails. The cars were open. There were no locomotives or guards. They gave us some food and left us there. If we wanted, we could have gotten off, but where would we go? We knew the local population wasn't going to help us. 
So we stayed in the rail cars and were there outside the camp on a siding for two or three days while other trains kept coming by, including Red Cross trains with wounded Hungarian and Romanian soldiers. We youngsters would run across the rails and beg them for food, which they gave us. After a few days, a locomotive arrived, as did a troop of SS guards. They closed the wagons, and the train moved on. I don't know how long we traveled, but when we arrived on the siding outside what we didn't know at the time was Buchenwald concentration camp. There were guards with dogs waiting for us as we Herded off the train, the guards were shouting, Schneller, Schneller, faster, faster. No one who wasn't there can possibly imagine what Buchenwald was like at the beginning of 1945. It was pandemonium. Soon after we arrived in the camp, the German Gentile couples of the internal administration asked us who the bad policemen or couples in our previous camp were, and then told us we should deal with them. So people did that. There were those who I suppose had grudges against the men I called Frankel, the lager elterster from Jelazna Huta, because when they found him, they beat him to death and threw him into a pile of other dead bodies. While they were beating him, there was no way that anyone could help him. If they had, they would have been next. I was devastated when I learned that he had been murdered. To me, he was a humane man. He ran the camp in such a way that we didn't have to worry that any second someone was going to kill us. We worked hard, but he guarded us and helped us. I found out later from other people who came before me that the grocer Avram was also murdered in Buchenwald. Although he had treated people so badly, I don't believe he should have been murdered. As soon as we arrived, the German couples interviewed us and asked us strange questions like, what childhood diseases we've had. We were all assigned a certificate, a Haftling's personnel carter, and mine, which was issued on January 20th, 1945, a copy which I obtained after the war, says that I had been arrested because I was a politische Pole Jude, a political Polish Jew. I was a political prisoner then, not an innocent child, enslaved simply because I was a Jew. We were placed in a quarantine with about 1,000 people crowded together in a barrack and given almost no food. Prior to our arrival, Criminals had run the camp administration, but by the time we arrived, it was being run by German communist prisoners. They were obviously still under SS rule, but I think the SS wanted to be on their good side. They must have known that the end of the war was coming and that they would have some explaining to do. There were satellite work camps at Buchenwald, but by this time, not everyone was working because of all the chaos. The communist administration tried to keep the atmosphere sane, but we were living like rats. It was the most horrible camp you could imagine. Everyone was trying to stay alive by grabbing life from everybody else. 
Since it was the end of the war, there was hardly any food, and people were dying from hunger and disease. Each morning, there must have been 40 and 50 bodies of people who had died during the sleep. The living were counted, the dead were taken to the crematorium. I can't recall how long I was in Buchenwald, but one day, names were being called out, and if yours was called, you had to go to the clock tower at the entrance of the camp. Everyone knew that going to the tower was ominous. The SS were either going to execute you or find some other means of torturing you. On that occasion, people who had come from Częstochowa were being called out, me among them, and we all went to the tower. Then suddenly, along with some others, I was on a train again. We didn't know it at the time and only found out later that Hasak had been looking for us. They needed us to work. We were shipped to Koldus, famous for its castle. We didn't arrive at a camp so much as a factory, where huge holes had been converted and outfitted with bunks for workers. The commander of the camp was a middle-aged assessment, like most of the assessment there. I suppose that all the young ones were fighting at the front. The commander wasn't even an officer. He was an Oberschaffierer, a senior sergeant. He looked us over and said in German that all the youngsters must step out. Of course, no one wanted to step out. Youngsters couldn't work as hard, and we all knew what that meant. But when he called for youngsters to step out, I was the only one who did. I don't know why, but again, something or someone must have been guarding me, either Providence or my father. When the group was dismissed, the Oberschaffierer took me by the hand and led me to the SS kitchen. When he told me I would be working there, I could hardly believe my luck. Working in the kitchen meant only one thing, food. But the commander didn't send me to the kitchen because of his good heart. He had an ulterior motive. He had a bag with him that he hid in the corner. He explained that no one could know about it and that every chance I got, I was to put some potatoes or other food in it for him. Then he would come at night and take the bag. The next morning, the bag would be back in its hiding place empty and waiting for me to fill it up again. We both knew that if I got caught, I would be shot. But I, nevertheless, did as I was supposed to. Thank God I was never caught. As I worked in the kitchen, peeling carrots, I ate some, and after dinner, when I was cleaning the vets, I would eat the little bits of meat that were left at the bottom. I didn't throw any of it out. It just so happened that Ralph Godel Eisner had also been sent to Kolditz, and we met there again. He had been shipped directly to one of the factories in Schlieben from Częstochowa. And our train, I suppose, was to have gone there, but had been sent to Buchenwald by mistake. So in the evenings, after I had eaten my fill in the kitchen, I would give Rav Eisner my ration of bread and soup. He survived the war, and I met him again in Paris when he was on his way from Poland to Israel.
I know that he became the head of a yeshiva, remarried, had a family, and lived well into his 90s. It feels good to know that while he was in coldest, I was able to give him my bread and soup in the evening. That's how it works. God's providence. The Rav made my bar mitzvah in a dangerous and unlikely place, and when I found him later, I was able to give him some extra food to help him stay alive. We were in Kolditz for several months until the middle of April 1945. One morning, we found out that the camp was being evacuated. We were each given bread, some sausage, and cheese and ordered to march. By early evening, we were in a forest in Germany when one of the SS guards, a Volksdeutscher corporal who spoke Polish, told us that we were free and that they were going to take off their uniforms because the Americans were coming. Everyone went crazy and started eating whatever food they had left because we were all so hungry. Suddenly, a troop of SS arrived and shot into the air. They made us lie down with our faces in the earth and said that anybody who raised their head would be shot. We lay there all night, and by the next morning we were marching again. So much for freedom. We were literally starving to death as we marched along. Day after day, and as we walked through the German towns, the residents threw stones at us, abused us, and refused us any food or water. Every night, the guards would push us into barns, and they counted us every morning to find out how many of us had died or run away in the night. They were unwavering in their resolve to find the runaways even at this late stage, and see to it that if we died, that it was with a bullet to the head. Sometimes, when we slept in a barn, we would eat the raw grain we found. If we were lucky enough to find the pump, we would have some fresh water to drink. If we didn't find anything, we would drink the dirty rainwater from the ditches and eat leaves and grass from the sides of the roads. We became so desperate that some people even ate insects to stay alive. One night, when we were staying in a barn, we were so exhausted and so hungry, we ate the raw corn or wheat or whatever was being stored there and then all collapsed for the night. The next morning, when the SS counted us, one person was missing. There was one amongst us, one young man who was the darling of the gods. He was about 20 years old and good-looking, with freckles and reddish-blonde hair. And I have no idea how he managed it but he was always well-dressed. During the count, it was discovered that this young man was the one missing. They counted again and again, and then we had to stand where we were not moving until he was found. Eventually, they did find him asleep under one of the sacks of grain. He had been so exhausted and so starved that he had not heard the call to get up. When the SS collected him, a middle-aged corporal put his young man's head between his legs, took out his revolver, which had a wooden handle, 
and shot him in the head at close range. Then he left him lying there on the ground, mutilated and still trembling, and one of the prisoners went over and took his shoes off. The SS had adored him, and yet they shot him only for oversleeping. This event is still so vivid for me, and I cannot forget that incident or that young man's face when he was alive. The shock of what happened to him was engraved indelibly on my mind. How does one deal with these things? It is the one thing that I have never been able to reconcile. In normal times, one takes for granted the cycle of life and death. But slaughtering men, women, and children by the thousands and dying without dignity or respect is not normal. You had to fight against it, push it away from your consciousness. If you were to remain sane and even more importantly human, for me at that time, death was anything but a normal life progression. After the war, I started living in a normal environment. But my consciousness and my mind had been constructed and corrupted in the camps, and I was not able to see death as part of the human process. My life had been put on a particular path during those five years of camps and ghettos. My fears and attitudes were molded and predetermined by these years, and it is nearly impossible to undo what was done to me. On the other hand, I did encounter the occasional glimmer of humanity. We were constantly being warned that anyone who struggled behind the group would be shot. But it was hard for many of us to keep up, since we were also tired hungry and weak. The SS Oberschaffierer, who had taken me to the kitchen, was leading the march, traveling up and down the column of people on an ordinary bicycle. And whenever I started to lag behind, he would pull up beside me, put his hand on my back, and push me back into the column, telling me that I must keep up and march. He would actually put his hand on my back and gently push me back into the crowd of marchers. As we marched along, the guards would shoot animals or rob farmers for food, which they would eat on the go. And this same Oberschaffierer would occasionally give me a bone. He did help me. Halfway through the march, right before we crossed into Czechoslovakia, a high-ranking SS officer came along on a motorbike, stopped the column, put his bike on its stand, and stood up on the saddle to speak to us. He told us there was to be no more killing. You are all comrades, he said, and must help each other. If someone is weak and can't walk, four people must carry him. He gave instructions to the guard. There was to be no more shooting. Then got back onto his motorbike and drove off. Everyone began to talk about him, speculating who he was. Some said he was an angel from heaven, while others thought he was a partisan dressed up as an SS officer. 
still others said maybe the Germans had changed their minds and decided to stop killing Jews. In the end, it didn't really matter. Whoever he was, the guards obeyed his orders, and there was no more shooting, although people still died after death from weakness or starvation. Of the approximately 1,500 people who started out on that march, I think only half arrived at our final destination, Theresienstadt.